0: Hello and welcome to Series 3 of the Training for Influence podcast. This series is all about the importance of emotional resilience in frontline services, as requested by you, our listeners. In this series, we hope to unearth real stories of both avoiding burnout and rebuilding after it. Our aim is to share positive thoughts and ideas that will inspire, protect and motivate frontline professionals. It's my great pleasure to welcome Mike Rigglesworth to the podcast today. Welcome, Mike. Morning, Tammy. Morning. Thank you so much for being here and for bearing with the um, technical difficulties <laughs> as well.
1: It's a pleasure. Would
0: you mind, Mike, just telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, your past history and your current activities?
1: Yeah, work-wise... I was a solicitor for over 30 years. I'm now a retired solicitor or non-practicing solicitor, just to make that clear. For most of that time, almost 27 years, I worked for the Crown Prosecution Service in a variety of uh, roles. So I started off appearing in the Magistrates' courts, doing all sorts of work there, then later got a qualification so I could appear in the Crown Court. I then went and spent a few years working in our HQ, our policy department, and I had the lead for Vulnerable and Intimidated Witnesses, which was really good, really interesting period of my life. I then left that and returned to area and headed up a crown advocacy unit. So I was a manager then, mostly. So I did that for about 10 odd years. And then I finished off in a Razo unit, a manager there, which is a rape and serious sexual offences unit, which each CPS area has. And I was a, a manager in, in that for about, I think, about 18 months or so. And that was my last job there.
0: Oh, wow. So you've had a really quite varied and eclectic career, but all connected to justice and yeah. supporting vulnerable people.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have really,
0: overall. I'm so pleased that you agreed to come and talk to us about the importance of emotional resilience, because this podcast series is all really dedicated to people who are working on the front line, who are trying to help people who are struggling within their lives, have complex needs and vulnerable themselves. But we're really recognising that we as frontline workers are people too. And we have our own complexities and we have our own challenges. And we're in the middle of a pandemic at the moment. So my invite to you really is to share with us some of your reflections on when you were working in that pressured situation, how you managed and what you did to maintain your emotional resilience in that time.
1: Yeah, I mean, working in the CPS was certainly a pressured environment, not not all the time by any stretch. And I'm somebody who, who needs a bit of pressure. And I think that can be good within certain limits. And for most of my time, things were fine. I could cope and deal with things. There were always times when you'd wake up at three in the morning thinking about a case or how it was going to go, or, you know, I was in court the next day and I was worried about a case or cases that I had to present. So a lot of these things were fairly short term the crisis would pass. Sometimes it would pass very quickly. Sometimes it might take a few days or longer, but the crisis would go over. So I worked long hours, but I did take time off. You know, I tended not to work in evenings, weekends. I did take holidays, sometimes not all my holiday allocation, which I don't advise. You should always take what is offered by your employer, because of course you end up with an hourly rate that's probably in pennies if you're putting in so many hours. And I also think that if you're working so many long hours, how effective are you really? You know, what you're actually doing, how good is that work? So to deal with pressure, my sanctuary, if things were tough at work, would be home. And I would say to people, especially as I line manage people for quite a number of years, and I spoke to people who are having issues at work and issues at home, I'd say, well, it's no wonder you're stressed. Because some people go to work to get away from the stress at home, or vice versa. But if you've got the stress at both main places, then where do you go to recharge your batteries to get your emotional resilience back up to acceptable levels?
0: I guess, why, in your opinion, does it even need to be acceptable levels? What happens if your emotional resilience is low?
1: Well, I can only say with me, at the the end of my full-time working career, I just wasn't coping. My faculties weren't coping properly. My decision-making wasn't as good as I knew it could be. I just wasn't hacking it at all. And that, for the first time ever, gave physical manifestations because I would see my shake, which had never happened before, literally shaking at times. And at the time, all the things at work were going pear-shaped for me. One of the last things I did at home was take our dog for a walk. And I think having a dog is a great thing. I think you'd agree with me, Tammy, for stress relief. It's hard to beat a dog, but I'd take our dog for a walk last thing in the evening. And I would have a gagging reflex, which I certainly never had that before. And then I committed the cardinal sin of looking it up on Google. (laughs) Um, But what it said, and I think it was right, was that it can be a symptom, a manifestation of stress. And that was concerning because that just had never happened to me before. But I think, as you say, maintaining your emotional resilience, the big thing I did wrong was I should have gone to see my GP weeks. No, not probably months before I did. I should have gone to see my GP. But I didn't because, you know, you get stupid pride. You get I mustn't let my team down. You know, if I go off, then everybody has to pick up my work. But the the daft thing was, was that I wasn't doing my work to the proper level. So I was letting them down anyway, in that sense. So in the end, I did go to see my GP. I saw a locum, actually, who was terrific and quite radical. (laughs) It's that surprising. She railed about the evils of employers. (laughs) It took me a bit by surprise. But she signed me off for two weeks initially. I was off for a lot longer. In fact, I never went back. I never went back to work. But that's what I needed. It took me too long to realise I just needed just to go. And as I say, I think that's what a lot of people, when they're not coping at work, they hang on for too long. And that's what I did. I hung on for too long when I should have let go and really just given myself time to heal.
0: Yeah. I guess it's difficult. You know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Oh,
1: yeah. It's fabulous.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We can look back and go, oh, well, if only. Mm. So you talked initially at the beginning of this podcast, you talked about trying to have that balance of home and work life. Yeah and kind of taking your dog out and things like that, what do you think went wrong for you that led you to feeling stressed and overwhelmed in that
1: way? I mean, part of it was I had too much to do. And I mean, a lot of people can say that, and will say that, but there was, there was literally too much to do. And I probably got de-skilled, but having done a different role for a long time, and then coming into a a new role, and perhaps not realising I probably needed some more induction time in that and in a very pressurised and stressful unit where there was a lot of attention on us and the work we did by its very nature. And as I say, I, I think I should have taken that time out and should have told the management earlier than I did. I did tell them that I was stressed, but I should have said that earlier. And as with people who worked to me, you know, find ways of alleviating that stress because What happens when people get too stressed out? They go, which is what happened to me. And I think a lot of it as well, I lost my confidence. So for a long time, during my time at the organisation, I like to think I wasn't overconfident, but I was confident in what I did. And my confidence was undermined by myself and I think by others as well. And I think it can be very difficult to come back from that when your confidence is not so much and you're doubting yourself where you didn't used to doubt yourself I think that is very hard to come back from.
0: Yeah, no, I can appreciate that that would be, not only would that be hard to come back from, but to come back from that when you're already in a vulnerable position, really what we need to try and do is prevent you ever getting into that stage in the first place.
1: Absolutely.
0: Were there any kind of early signs and symptoms, I guess, that you recognised yourself or that anybody else at work could have or should have recognised?
1: I think colleagues, some colleagues did recognise, in fact, outside of work, a very old friend of mine, who I don't see every week or anything, but I do see fairly regularly, he'd noticed that I wasn't right. Six of us, very old friends, had gathered together socially, and he'd said afterwards, what's wrong with Mike? I thought I'd covered it up. <laughs> I thought I was, uh, you know, Mr. Jolly and, and all the rest of it, but he'd actually seen through it. And it's... I found with people I line managed, they were pretty good in that they would come to me and tell me what their issues were. And as I say, it does go back to this, you're in a very stressful, pressurized job. I mean, I fortunately didn't have stresses at home, but quite a few people who I was line manager for did. Fortunately, they did tell me about them. And I was able to do things with them to try and alleviate that stress, you know, such as working from home or making sure that they took some leave or just talking about it. Just going through things with them, because I I think actually just talking through a situation in and of itself can be, you know, therapeutic.
0: No, absolutely. But it does sound like you are talking about in one breath, you're telling me about a time where you really struggled. And burnt out to the extent that you left the um, employment and have now gone on to other wonderful things. But on the other breath, you're telling me how well you managed to pick up on other people's stress and difficulties and things. I'm wondering there where the disconnect is for you individually, because I quite often see managers giving everything to their teams because they absolutely feel like it is their responsibility to support their team's emotional resilience, ensure that they're capable sure that they've got the flexibility for their family all of those things absolutely fantastic and you know I would never ask them not to because we want people to look out for each other and I certainly have my own story of my manager swooping in and saving me at a time where actually now hindsight being that wonderful thing if she hadn't have got involved there then I, I recognize I could have put myself into dangerous situations but it does make me wonder whether you were giving so much of yourself to work and to looking out for other people that you didn't either recognize how close to burning out you were or those early symptoms because surely you should have been able to cope with that anyway because you were dealing with everybody else's. If that makes
1: yeah sense. yeah I do see what you're saying and I'm not saying I was super perceptive with everybody because sometimes I wouldn't know what I like to think is that I was approachable so people would come and tell me things and therefore I could try and do something about it but I think that is an interesting point where you are a manager yourself I think it can give you an added sense of responsibility and you can't let the side down because you're the manager what does it look like if you go off with stress I think there is that side of it as well you know, not wanting to let the team down and all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, you know, you talk about duty of care and you do owe a duty of care to your team and to your employer, but you, you do owe a duty of care to yourself and not just yourself, but, you know, whoever you happen to live with at home. So this wasn't good for my wife either. It was difficult for her because, you know, I could get snappy and fly off the handle and that sort of thing, which is obviously another symptom of stress. And, you know, you've got to think of the people who who you love and thinking, well, this isn't doing them any good either. So you've really got to do something about it.
0: When did you go to the doctors? So did something happen that suddenly made you think, no, this is serious now?
1: Yeah, it did. There was a conversation with management and I just came to one of those realisations, just sat at my desk, almost like being prophetic, (laughs) thinking, that's it, I can't carry on. And I don't think I'll ever come back. I mean, later on, I thought that I would, but that turned out to be true. And I think sometimes, especially when I was in the same institution for so long, you know, when things are okay, which there were for the vast majority, this is only like the last six months or so, really, of 27 years, you know, things have a shelf life. And before things were going pear-shaped, I just thought, oh, well, I'll keep working on, and, you know, I like my job, and I'll pass 60, and maybe I'll go partially retired, or maybe I won't, and these sorts of ideas... I thought I'd just go on until retirement, until events intervene. And you think, well, actually, no, I think I've reached the end of the road with the organisation. And I think sometimes it's right to go on and move on. But that's a very scary thing, especially when, like me, you're sort of institutionalised. What else do I know? It's rather scary. And I haven't been in that position for a very long time since I was a young solicitor. So When things are more forced upon you, you're going to think, well, I'm going to have to think of other things. But then the pendulum swings, the emotional pendulum swings. And as you come through it, you see, in fact, there are new exciting things that you can do. And that's where I feel I am now, where I'm more in control. I can say what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do, where before I had to basically do what I was told. And you you see that whilst it was a bad time for me, as often in life, good things can come out of bad things.
0: Yeah, we need to remember that at the moment, don't we? Yeah,
1: absolutely. absolutely. (laughs)
0: Good things can come out of bad things. And it's brilliant that you are in that position now where you can look back and see all of the positives that have come out of, I guess, the journey that you've been on that wouldn't have been the most comfortable journey at the time. And would have led you to questioning yourself on Mm. multiple occasions I'd like to take a brief interval from talking to our wonderful guest today to tell you a little bit about tay training and training for influence tay training exists to help you deliver exceptional services services that have the ability to influence the lives of the most complex and vulnerable all of our facilitators are operational experts they tailor the training to your needs they make it engaging and interactive, and really importantly, it's delivered from a values-led perspective. This is the Training for Influence methodology, which we created to have added influence on the sector. We recognize the importance of building the emotional resilience of frontline professionals, influencing their values and supporting them to make values-based decisions. So we made this the golden thread of our training methodology. We truly believe that frontline professionals are perfectly positioned to positively influence the most complex of lives, but to be able to do that, we need to help them be the best that they can be. So training for influence is our creative solution. It can be overlaid onto any training course and means that frontline professionals, whether they're attending mandatory or specialist training, will have their emotional resilience built and their values positively influenced. Do you think now, looking back, do you think there's anything that could have prevented being burnt out in that way? Were there any early signs and anything that could have been put into place that potentially, if somebody else is in your position now, that could be recognised?
1: Yeah, um, I think certainly the physical things, but before then, I think it's just, for example, at my workplace, you could, and it's very good, you could have cognitive behavioural therapy on the phone now, I did that. I did six sessions and they were very good. And that was a great thing that my employer provided. And I took advantage of that. But I did it once I'd gone on work-related stress, sick leave, which was fine. And that, that was good. And it did me good. And it gives you insights. But really, I should have, before the physical manifestations, as things were getting, ooh, you know, I've not really felt like this before. Then I should have hooked into my management and said, can I have that CBT therapy now whilst I'm at work? And really look to have some sort of framework just to take some of that stress off. I mean, they did things were done, but it, I think things were too far down the road with me at that time to alleviate that pressure, et cetera. Because like in so many organisations, there's so much to do and there's so little time. And we all know there's never, ever, ever going to be enough hours in the day to do the job. And that was certainly the case with me. And nobody's indispensable. So I'm going, oh no, keep soldiering on. Well, I'm not indispensable. You know, they're still carrying on. (laughs) You know, I've I've been gone now for quite a while. And, you know, has the world collapsed? No, it hasn't. So it has to be a two-way street between you. You've got to take some responsibility for yourself, but the management, wherever you work, has to hopefully see the science. But if they're stressed and they're, you know, running themselves ragged, then of course they're a lot less likely to see it, aren't they?
0: Yeah, exactly, because they're trying to do the 3,000, they can't get done that day
1: either. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. I know certainly when I was quite young to work in, I used to think that work life got easier as you kind of, I guess, climb the metaphorical tree, because on the ground and you're not dealing and I've always worked within either homelessness or criminal justice or always complex needs situations and I kind of thought as you climbed that metaphorical tree things would get easier because you're one step removed each time from that stress difficulty that continuing chaos because in those sectors quite often you go in with a plan and you've stepped through the door and the plans change four times you know? and yeah. so I thought I had this perception that things would get easier mm. But my experience certainly isn't that at all. And you could argue now that I've kind of climbed to the top of that metaphorical tree. I've spent my time being a CEO and going through all of those processes. And actually, I don't think it gets easier at all. I think it just gets different. The pressures are still there. And they're different pressures. I remember being quite young, working on the ground with young people who were experiencing homelessness, and they were not in education or employment or training or anything, and they were, had really, really chaotic lives. And I remember the stress of that being trying to get hold of them, trying to support them, trying to communicate with them, trying to motivate them encourage all of those things. And then you, when you get to kind of the next step of the supervisor, then it just changes. Your stress is around helping your staff members be able to do that on a bigger level. And then it just keeps building. And I don't think we necessarily give ourselves enough recognition of that increased pressure and change in pressure as well. Yeah,
1: I think they're really good points, Sammy, because there are different types of stress and some people can deal with some a lot better than others. And I think you're right, as you certainly as a manager, you do take on your line management, the people who you're responsible for. And you can have that perception when you're at the sharp end of, oh, managers, well, yeah, that's a lot easier, isn't it? And I remember not that long ago thinking, oh, well, you know, here I am at well into my 50s and I've seen it all and I've done it all. I can cope with it. I've seen it, you know, I can cope with things. And how wrong was I? Because that wasn't the case at all, because something different came up that I just couldn't cope with. And I just had to eventually recognise that. So I think it's being alive to that, that no matter what stage you are in your career, you haven't seen it all and something could tip your boat up and it can come over a, a period of time. It can be a lot of, certainly over the past six years or so, I've had lots of life changing things, not just work finishing abruptly, but other things as well. Family members dying, that sort of thing. And things that I thought were pretty immovable in my life, I found were movable. Yeah. Uh, and I think when you've got these bedrocks and, and all of a sudden they move and you weren't what? what, where's that gone? It's a bit like an earthquake, isn't it? When you see the aftermath of an earthquake somewhere and you see what it was like before and you think, wow. And I think that can happen to us. And I think a lot of it is being alive so that when things are going okay or doing fine, their life's good. Then I think it is important about, you know, you might be a dog person, you might be a cat person, you might be neither. Your exercise, what you do to relax. They're really important because they provide the foundations when things do get tough. And they might just help or alleviate or avoid you tripping over later on in life.
0: Yeah, it really is about those early interventions, isn't it? Yeah, Um,
1: (laughs) that's the tricky bit.
0: Yeah. And I, I'm saying this to you knowing that I could be far better at it myself. And that's one of the things that I think is so interesting when, when we talk about emotional resilience is I absolutely recognise the importance of it and the continued recognition of the importance, not just when your back's against the wall, you suddenly think, oh, gosh, I need to do something about this. It needs to be something that you're always constantly aware of and kind of talking to and looking out for your colleagues and such like. Yeah. But even within that context... I know that there's been many times where I've got close to the edge and gone, whoa, 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 right, okay, I, I need to do something now. And fortunately for me, I've been able to kind of pull myself back from that edge, but I've seen so many, more than I can count, really amazing workers, particularly across criminal justice, social care and charities, who have actually got a lot more to give the sectors and certainly a lot more to give the people who need their support and their advocation, et cetera. And actually, for their own benefit, they've stepped away from the sector. Mm. And it is a shame. But also, you can, in some ways, I celebrate that to an extent as well. You know, it's that balance that you've got to consider of the people. We easily forget that the people making the change are people too, and have those lives and those complexities. So I really do appreciate you sharing your story today. Hopefully it will help some of our listeners recognize that it doesn't really matter where you are in life, putting yourself first isn't selfish at all. And if you've got such a block that you still can't even in your mind think about putting yourself first, then recognize that actually your loved ones and your work will not be receiving from you what they need if yeah. you're not putting yourself first.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Have you got anything you'd like to say just to finish off the podcast? Any, I guess, top tips for anybody that is listening to this and finding that your story really resonates with them? What should they go and do now?
1: Um, I think there's all sorts of things. I think people know what they enjoy doing out of work. And I think it's not neglecting that. So I think it's keeping in tune with the things that work for you and that can be, I was going to say going to the pub within reason, but obviously we can't do that at the moment. And you've always got to be careful with alcohol intake, that's for sure. But, you know, if it's exercise, I mean, I I was somebody who never ran. But after my sister dying, actually, in 2014, I I took up running, which was just, where did that come from? Because I always hated it as a kid and suffered from asthma and have very unhappy memories of cross-country running. and. Hands too cold to button up a shirt at the end of it. But I decided to do a sponsored Raj raise funds in memory of my sister five years ago. And I've kept on running, not running away, but uh, <laughs> but just running, which I think shocked everybody really. I don't
0: think you're um, ever going to persuade me to start running. But I do love the fact that actually you just said there that the first time you ran, you ran in memory of your sister. Maybe that's what keeps you running.
1: Yeah, I think. And that was something that. I, I did the Great North Run, and wife did it as well. Go so hard or go home. She'd not like it if I didn't mention she did it as well because she did. <laughs> but but you know I was running for my sister. But as I was running past a signpost for heaven, not heaven, heaven, um, <laughs> there were people in front of me, and they had pinned to their backs pictures of people they'd lost. Oh. Um, I mean that almost finished me. You know, and so you a lot of people do things for lots of different reasons. But I mean, I'm very fortunate. I live on the edge of a lovely valley. And I run in the valley, but I also walk in it as well. And I think that's one thing, certainly during lockdown, that's come out a lot. And they've made a lot of, quite rightly, getting out there amongst the greenery and and the trees. And a lot of people in the town I live in have done that. And they thought, I didn't know this was here. I've lived here umpteen years. I've never ventured into the valley. And so it can be very simple things. But critical, you've got to give yourself a bit of an MOT, you know, sort of filling the tank up again. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is. We all know what we like doing. You've got to make sure that you don't stop doing it, even when the going gets tough at work.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great piece of advice to finish on. And I'm literally, as you're saying that, thinking, I'm going to go and review my calendar for the rest of this week. And I'm going to take something out of it and swap it with a walk around beautiful York. Yeah. We're all human, you know, and we all find ourselves piling everything on, don't we? Because it's so important that we get that done. And yes, of course, quite a lot of the work that lots of us undertake is important, but none of us are irreplaceable. And actually the quality of the work that we do, but also the life that we live, is absolutely determined by looking after ourselves.
1: Absolutely. And um, yeah, I mean, I love York. I used to work there. I got married there many years ago. And when I used to work in York, we were very fortunate because out the window, you could look out and see the minster. And again, you know, sometimes I'd look at it and think, well, that's been there a long time before me and it'll be there a long time after me. (laughs) Just get a bit of perspective. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. Perspective is really useful. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Mike, thanks so much. As ever, I've really enjoyed talking to you today and really appreciated you sharing your story with our listeners. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast today. We really hope you found it enjoyable and useful. Please do click subscribe and then you'll be the first to know when we publish the next episode. And we'd love it if you could share this podcast with a friend or a colleague who might find the tips useful or resonate with the stories. If you'd like to find out any more about us or our wonderful guests, all the information can be found in the show notes. We really hope you have a wonderful day. And please remember, be kind to yourself. It makes all the difference.